welcome back to Marvel's Voices for Season 7. I am your host, Anjali Grochet. This season, we're talking all about building better tables of creative decision makers and storytellers, including inclusive creative teams on comics, movies, TV shows, and more. And speaking of TV shows, today is all about the delightful new animated series, Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. That's right, my favorite roller skating scientist who has the most amazing prehistoric best friend. First, I'll talk to producer Pilar Flynn about her career and about developing the show. With over 20 years in the industry, she has a lot to say about building the creative team behind the series and why inclusivity was so important to the show's leadership. After that, we'll hear a little bit from some actors on the show about what it was like performing in that inclusive environment. Here's Pilar Flynn. Hi. Hi, Angelique. It's so nice to meet you. It's such a pleasure. You're working on something I am so looking forward to. So oh, I'm, I'm very excited. But for folks who may not have met you, introduce yourself to the listeners and what you do. Well, my name is Pilar Flynn, and I am a Latina from Ecuador and Chile. And I'm a producer slash creative producer and now co-showrunner. And I've been in animation for over 20 years working in studios like DreamWorks Features and Sony. And now I'm so lucky to be part of Disney. Before this, for Disney, I produced Elena of Avalor, which was so special to me because it was the first ever Disney Latina princess. And now I am bursting with excitement and pride to be working on Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, as I said, producer for season one. And now for season two, I've crossed over to the creative side and will be co-showrunner along with a couple of other co-workers. So yeah, I'm here and just so excited to show Moon Girl to the world. What I love is you started off with Elena of Avalar. For you, working on a project like that, that's so important to so many people. What has drawn you kind of in your career to work on the projects you've worked on? And how was it working on that show in particular? Like you say, I have worked on a lot of shows in my career, but Elena was the first one that was truly, truly special to me. I mean, she was she was my chica. I loved everything about it from Amy Carrero, who was the incredible actress who played Elena, and of course, Jenna Ortega, who is now Wednesday Adams herself. I'm so proud of her, was Isabel. So to work with these incredible creative Latinas at the kind of earlier stages of their career was special. But to work on something that not only you know, gave incredible messages to women, but also to my community, but also, you know, to the world and showed that this was a different kind of princess. So on so many levels, it was just a special project that, you know, and it was the first time I saw myself reflected on screen, like truly authentically, even though I had done Latin projects in the past, this was the first time there were so many Latinos on the crew that we were able to authentically represent, that we had consultants. And I'll tell you a story of what meant the most to me, which is that, you know, when I came to the States, as so many of us did, I tried to really hide my Latinidad. I felt like it worked against me. I was kind of afraid to let people know where I came from, that I wasn't from here. You know, when I arrived in the States, I didn't have a green card. I had no family here. And to go from hiding my authentic self to now having my own two little girls watch Elena and turn to me and say, Mama, I'm a Latina, so that means I can do anything was the most incredible feeling humanly possible. And I knew from that moment that that is what I need to do more. Like, yes, I love animation. I love entertainment. But I wanted to do something that meant something to this next generation and to all of us. 
And even to see my mom, <laughs> who, you know, also grew up in the, again, the Pinochet regime, to have my daughters turn to her and say, you know, Lali, you are a strong, powerful woman because you are Latina. She literally cried when they told her that. So, you know, it just meant the world. And another story about that is I work with Edward James Olmos. I'm on his board for the Latino Film Institute. And I started on that when I was on Elena of Avalor. And we brought some of the kids from his youth cinema project into the offices of Elena. And yes, we were trying to show them, look, there's so many jobs and you guys can join animation. There is room for you. You know, people do want you. But the one thing that made the biggest difference is we were on the tour and we're walking along, like showing them the artists and the different jobs. And all of a sudden I realized three little girls from our tour were missing. And I was like, well, where did these girls go? And I suddenly realized they had gone into my office <laughs> and I walked in there and these three little girls were standing there and they're looking around. I was like, I was like, chicas, what, what are you doing in here? And they said, oh my God. They said, Miss Pilar, is this your office? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, this is my office. They're like, this whole thing is your office? And I was like, that's right, girls, this is my office. And they saw the pictures of my girls and the family. And they were just, their eyes were so huge and wide. And I said, that's right, girls, this is my office because I'm the boss. And if you work hard enough, this could be you one day. And the aha moment in their eyes was so profound. Nothing else mattered. It didn't matter that we were showing them jobs and roles and other artists. What mattered is for them to see it, for them to actually believe it. And so taking all that, you know, incredible, precious amount of gifts and jewels I got from Elena, I knew that the next project I did had to mean that and possibly more. And I think I've achieved that with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. I'm so excited because, like I say, just the levels of messaging of diverse representation we do on the show, the truths we uncover within the episodes is just so profound and special to me. So can't wait to share with the world. It's kind of near and dear to me just because my family is pretty mixed. Part of it being Afro-Latinx. I love the fact that young girls are growing up with a sense of pride, right? And, and it's also the diversity that other kids are seeing who may not be Latinx, who may not be people of color. Now, before I go to Moon Girl, Devil Dinosaur, our executive producer, Jill, has two kids who absolutely love Elena Favalor. And they sent over a couple questions. Do you, do you mind? Oh, love that. I had a feeling you would be game. So from Mabel, age four. Aww. Are the mean guys ever going to get kinder and help their mother? Ooh, the mean guys. I believe Shriki. Oh, Shriki. Ah, okay. Unfortunately, not right now. But if there was to be a movie special in the future, that is definitely something we could look back into and uncover and explore further. Because yes, I see, totally get what they're saying. And I would love to go back in and explore different layers of messaging and feelings in the villains and not make them so like black or white. And then from Milo, age six, when is Esteban ever going to come back to the Elena of Avalar show? Ooh, Esteban. Oh, my favorite Christian Lance. He's, he's the best. He's uh, the actor who plays him. Well, for sure, he was one of the standout fan favorites. And like I say, Christian himself, the actor, is just the sweetest, kindest person. So if we were to continue the show, absolutely, he would be a main character and, and come back on. It would be one of the first on our list. All right. So we could talk about Elena of Avalar all day, but we are here for your newest project. So I got to say, you are totally excited for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. I can see your face. It is like beaming off of you. Ugh. Were you familiar with Lunella before this? You know, how much research did you have to do into Moon Girl? And, you know, what was the thing that really drew you to the project? So growing up, because I grew up mostly in South America and Europe, 
Marvel comics weren't something, to be honest, people handed a little Latina girl to read. But I can tell you, if I had read them, I would have absolutely loved them. When I grew up, my absolute favorite show in the world was Thundercats, and I wanted to be Chitara. I thought she was this badass Latina, you know, and I thought <laughs> I could be her when I grew up because, you know, it was dubbed in Spanish, so I knew no better. I loved graphic novels and comics. Back then, I read like Asterix Noblex and Tintin and, you know, all the things that were popular then. So when I got here to the States, first of all, with the MCU, I loved all the movies, you know, did start reading, but did not hear about Moon Girl until I was at DTVA working on Elena. And there were kind of whispers because it was a Marvel project, so it was kind of secret. But there were whispers that they were developing this project called Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. So, of course, immediately I looked it up and I fell in love with it the second I read it and saw what it was about. And then when the creative team who was developing it pulled me in to show me what they were doing, I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is the first African-American teen girl superhero from Marvel is going to get her own show and she has a red dinosaur and her best friend is a Latina. I was like, sign me up. Where do I sign up? I just... I knew that was the project I had to do, even though I was uh, slated to go on to something else. So yeah, I talked to that team and Disney and I was like, please, please, you, you don't understand like this. I am meant to do this show, like in every way. And so yeah, after talking to everyone, it just felt so organic and, and like such a perfect fit. And yeah, from day one, you, you know, even seeing how they had expanded on the comics was so incredible and special that um, yeah, it was like, I feel like it was destined to be. It sounds weird, but everything about it has, has resonated with every core of my being and what I felt I wanted to do next in my career and for the world. I love it. And you've kind of talked about this before and in your work, this idea of having a diverse and inclusive production team and cast, right? And, and wow, mm -hmm. the cast and the production team here is truly diverse. As a creative, but also as a producer, why is it so important to have a diverse production team and how do you go about finding the right talent? I mean, Lawrence Fishburne, it's Alfre Woodard, it's Chris Summer, it's right, Shears right. Amanda. Like it's it's stacked with brilliant people, not to mention Diamond White. How do you do that both on the casting side and the production side? Because it can be on the exterior very diverse, but not necessarily always follow follow through within the production and the creative team as well. Yes, absolutely. And it is not easy because, as you know, the gap between younger, newer, diverse talent and senior level talent is so wide. We have so much work to do between the two. And to have a diverse crew do a project this challenging, this complex, this important, yeah, was daunting. But that did not matter. That was our first core mission. And I tell you, what made a big difference was that we started off with diverse members of leadership. So between Helen Sugland, who's uh, Lawrence Fishburne's partner, who is an incredible woman. If you don't know her, she's just like one of my biggest inspirations ever. We have Ben Juano as our supervising director. Of course, Steve Loder, he knew this was integral and so important. Rafael Chávez is my producer. We just knew like we had to hold hands and it was critical that behind the scenes, we were as authentic as the on-screen representation we were putting up there because we had all felt it before, you know, in past diverse projects where it didn't feel authentic or it didn't feel true. And this was too important. And so, like I say, we held hands and we were like, we will do whatever it takes and we will consciously work really hard to not only find crew out there that is diverse, that would be reflective of what we're showing on screen, but also that shared our mission and not only just throw them in to sink or swim, but find a way to set up initiatives so that they could grow and we could form a bridge between 
those kind of entry-level positions and making sure they very quickly got full seats at the table. Because as I'm sure you know, and many people may not know, it's not about talent. We have so much talent and skill out there. It is crazy. It's about not believing that you're wanted or not believing that people believe in you and your skills and not wanting to feel tokenized. So a lot of it is convincing people that we want them and we want them for their abilities and skills and not just to tokenize them. And it made all the world of difference when it was all the people I mentioned to you calling directly and being like, no, this is, this is what we're looking for. We believe in you. We're in this together. So slowly but surely we grew a team. And I tell you, it was very much like us making calls and like looking on Instagram and passion pitches. But once it got rolling, it was actually incredibly easy because people started learning who was on our crew and what our mission was and seeing how it was coming through. And then, I mean, having Rafael Sadiq alone as our executive music producer, people were like, what? You have Rafael Sadiq doing this Disney Marvel project? So, you know, our actions really did speak louder than words. And the more that ball kind of rolled, the more people wanted to join us and wanted to like hold hands and yeah, create this team that was authentic. And I think you can really feel that in the tapestry of the show when you see it. Do you have any advice for folks who are trying to build better teams? Yes. First, kind of like I say, there are enough people out there to put in spots of leadership and to give seats at the table to be kind of your representatives to go out there to like authentically pursue those people. The biggest thing I have to say is that you need the money. You need the money and the time and you need to have people on your team that are willing to fight for that, to go to the studios because they have the money and the time. It just takes someone passionate enough to explain to them why it's needed. So for example, on our show, I was mentioning to you that we created a lot of very new initiatives to help bridge that gap. That took money, that took time, and that took a studio and leadership that believed that we needed it and understood why we were needing it. So when I started as producer in season one, it was a lot of, okay, I gotta, I gotta cut this or I gotta, you know, get rid of that luxury so that I can elevate someone to be a co-director, for example, or to help bridge the union or like pay someone to train up, you know, so they can enter the union, so they can enter this job. A lot of it is just that equity is saving space for the equity. For example, I mean, this is <laughs> this is something that, that is so amazing to me that people don't quite understand. Even Latinos, you know, we have to really reach out to this next generation and help them get those skills. And a lot of people are like, well, can't they just learn animation? You know, can't they just, everything's online now and there's, you know, lectures. And what they don't realize is these kids don't have laptops. They cannot afford laptops or computers, never mind like log in online. So people's minds, like you really have to get them to understand that that gap is so enormous that we need to be responsible to go and fill it and pull them in. So yeah, that that's first and foremost. And then third, I would say once they do have those people in those positions, don't just let them be, don't let them sink or swim, check in with them, make sure they do have their voices heard. Something we did on Moon Girl, which was very different from any show I've ever been on, is it's a very collaborative show. We invited everybody on the show from production assistant on up to give us ideas, give us their thoughts. We screened every version of the animatic for anyone on the crew who wanted to see it. Anything they saw that wasn't right, that we were missing, that they thought would elevate things, you know, any line that they thought would make it more authentic, we invited them to pitch that and weigh in. And that's not easy, you know, because you don't, a lot of times you can't have an insecure leadership do something like that, you know, to hear everybody's thoughts from all over. But like I say, between Helen Suglin and Steve Loder, they verbally made that their mission. And I can tell you it made all the difference. So 
not easy things to do, but oh my God, they pay off. And yeah, for us, you can really feel it. Like I say in the show when you watch it. So I want to take a step back. How did you first get into animation? Ooh, good question. Well, long story short, so I was this crazy little girl growing up, of course, watching Thundercats, Chitara, et cetera, going, you know, when I grow up, I want to go to Hollywood. I'm going to make movies. I really wanted to create entertainment that touched people the way I felt. Because I moved around so much of my life, the one constant I had, the one family I had, I felt was TV, you know, and the same shows that kind of moved with me from one place to another. So I never thought to be in animation because, again, I didn't see anyone like me in animation and I am not an artist. So I didn't think it was possible. So I came to the States. I went to Boston University to study film and TV, thinking, okay, I'll be in, in film. I'll figure something out. Got there. Again, no green card, no family in the States. But I, the second I graduated, literally the week I graduated, I got my little car drove cross country, got over here with my then boyfriend, my friends. We slept on, you know, one another's couches and different apartments, like elevated each other. And I did work in live action for a little while, but a lot of it was, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know, you know, a lot of it was like picking up laundry and getting coffee. And I thought, oh my God, this is nothing like what I thought it would be. And, and I really didn't feel seen. I mean, one funny story is the first job I got in live action, I got hired not because of my great GPA, because of all the extracurricular activities, because of my independent films I made. I literally got hired because one guy turned to the other and was like, what do you think? She'll look cute in the front office. Yeah, she will. All right. And that was my first job. But, you know, I thought it doesn't matter how I got this job. I got it. And now is my chance to prove myself. And at that time, DreamWorks Features was starting up and I had a few friends from college start over there. And they were calling me up going, oh my God, Pilar, you would not believe how amazing it is over here. Steven Spielberg comes in and talks to us about story. Elton John is, you know, playing piano in the cafeteria because this was Prince of Egypt, Road to El Dorado days. And there's things called storyboard artists and they pitch storyboards, you know, on pieces of paper that they've drawn on. And they were like, and it's so international. There are people from all of the world working here. And I was like, wait, wait what is this like animation like that's a, and they're like yeah and they need production people that know production and not necessarily are artists so i went and um met with people there and i just fell in love i i knew oh my god what is this thing called animation and just the fact that i could find a space for myself in there was just such kismet so fortunate because it was the perfect place for me and yeah starting then on you know i've just been there for 20 years plus and i'm just so grateful that my road, you know, I just kind of threw myself into whatever presented itself in front of me and the road kind of led me into animation. I've met such incredible people, like I say, from all over the world and made some incredible content that has reached this next generation, who now, by the way, are growing up and telling me, I love Rotel Dorado, I loved Sinbad, I loved, you know, <laughs> Madagascar. And I'm like, oh my God. If you were to describe what kind of storyteller you are, what kind of stories you love to tell, how would you? Well, I definitely love to tell fantastical stories that take you away from this world and, and make you think outside the box and of all the incredible opportunities or options there are out there. And I definitely love to tell coming of age stories because I will always be a 13 year old little girl <laughs> at, at heart myself, as anyone who knows me will tell you. And so to me, between Elena and Moon Girl, those were exactly that. It was taking messages that are profound to us, people I know, to myself, and combining that with fantastical, beautiful, magical worlds and doing it in an entertaining, heartfelt, funny way. 
And one of the things I love to infuse in shows that I work on or that draw me to shows that I end up working on are elements of family, you know, both found family and the family you were born into, because both are true. You can, you know, be really close to your family that you were born into, but just for people and for me to remember that you can also choose who your family going forward is, is such a beautiful concept. So yeah, I've realized that a lot of the projects I'm drawn to do have all those elements in them. The animation is so beautiful and so like wonderfully fast paced and vibrant. Moon Girl is a significantly different animation style visually from Elena Vavilar. It's really speaking from its own voice. Explain to people what that is, but also what was the choice for this particular story in going into this direction with the animation style? Yeah. So Steve Loder, Sean Jimenez, who's the production designer, and Ben Juano, the supervising director, were the ones who started off kind of visually developing and creating what this look would be. And, you know, as it went down the line, the more we talked about it, we wanted to create something that, as you say, was vibrant and popped off the page and felt like a comic book come to life. And of course, we were all fans of Spider-Verse, but we did not have anywhere near the budget of Spider-Verse. And we wanted to do something that was unique, you know, for Lunella. So between all that and also Steve Loder and uh, Rodney Clowden, who's our other co-executive producer, they grew up in New York and they wanted to also have a visual style that was authentic to the New York they grew up in. So it's kind of a fantasy version of New York where it is kind of a 1960s style and look, but moved into present day. And we wanted to create something with layers and beautiful art that popped out at every cell, basically. And because we didn't have the money to do flowy kind of um, full-on animation like you would do in a feature, we had to be very specific and conscious of what we spent our time on. So I am so excited to say also we had Kat Kosmala come on and Jen, who's our animation lead at Flying Bark. So we have two female animation leads and they were given the task of figuring this out. And they helped create this kind of pop and stop style where every pose is really important, is really beautiful, but we pop from kind of one one pose to another. And it's all hand-drawn. It's done in 2D, which again, we never... <laughs> skip corners on this show. Everything was so challenging and barely any animated shows are there are 2D. Never mind done in 2D with all these characters, you know, with all these incredible comic book screen pressed backgrounds with emojis popping in and out. There's so many levels on this show that it, it really is kind of mind blowing. But we wanted it to be that no matter where you stop, you know, whatever self, you know, for lack of a better term, you, you stop on, it looks like a beautiful work of art, something worthy of our incredible superhero. Where do we find our most favorite, young, smartest person in the whole world when we meet her season one of Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur? Well, when we first meet Lunella Lafayette, she knows how smart she is. She embraces her quirkiness, her uniqueness, her smarts, but she's not quite yet a super genius. And she loves her community. She loves roller skating. She lives with her family, who is a multi-generational family who co-owns Roll With It, which is the last roller rink surviving in the Lower East Side in our story. And she just loves everything about her family, her community, the people in it. But the one thing she starts realizing as she comes of age and becomes 13 is, 
oh, there are a lot of issues in her community. There are a lot of people kind of um, turn the other way when they're dealing with blackouts or, you know, community problems. She even has a line in there that she says, you know, do the Avengers even come below 14th Street? And that speaks a lot to, you know, the kids growing up, they're feeling like they're not seen, they're not heard, even though they care and are feel so compassionate for their community. The want and need to scream out to the rest of the world to pay attention to them is so strong and profound. And that's where we find her. And so it's the moment where she decides, I need to do something about this, that she creates the portal generator, which she thinks is going to solve one thing, which is to cure the blackouts and help her community. But instead, as you do, she ends up instead pulling in a giant red T-Rex dinosaur from another dimension. So what's beautiful about it is she starts off on her own, pushing herself forward to create what she wants for herself, but ends up receiving what she needs. And that's this dinosaur to partner up with her smarts and to be her brawn and her best friend and to make herself her own superhero. And instead of looking on the outside and silently screaming to others for help, stepping into it herself and finding a way to be the protector and also the community builder. Because what she represents is not only a superhero, she doesn't really have superpowers other than her smarts and her heart, like you say. But her superpower is being able to preach basically and, and teach everyone around her that one person can make a difference if you put your mind to it. And that's what she does with her family, with her dinosaur and with her, her bestie, Latina Lady Boss Casey. And it's just so fun to see this group of normally very underrepresented people step up in such a such a big way, you know, and I think that's a really special message. What was the most fun about doing this project and what are you excited for folks to see? Well, for sure, the most fun was working with this incredibly talented, passionate, caring, similar minded team. We keep telling ourselves it is about the journey. And even if no one watches it, even if it's not successful, it does not matter because it has meant so much to us. We've had so much fun making it. We made most of it in the pandemic, you know, during some really, really hard times. And so all of us bonded, you know, through these little screens, you know, in a very profound way. And now that we've gotten to finally like be together and be connected, you know, on another level, it has just been a special journey from beginning to end. But to stand in the middle and look around at a team that is so diverse, that is so passionate, so down to earth, no ego, has truly been not only fun, but such a joy in every way. I can't even tell you. I, I hope to work with this team forever and ever because, yeah, we've become so close, you know, in our mission to bring this show to the world. Let me know if you need anybody to come bring people coffee because it sounds like an incredible place to work. Come by anytime. What else do you want folks to know? I mean, I cannot wait for folks to see the show. I think the main thing I would love to share with people, and especially, you know, people who are looking to get into animation, to step up as leaders who maybe didn't believe in themselves before and are finally maybe starting to find ways to believe in themselves, is that they're more than just one kind of leader. There really are. And growing up in this, I always believed there was one thing you had to be. And I was always a really shy little girl who was afraid to speak up, who was afraid to, you know, be seen in the room. And so I was always the person kind of hiding, like just absorbing everything I could. And to now be in this role as co-showrunner of season two is just mind-blowing to me. But to realize that, you know, look around at my team and see so many different kinds of leaders with different skills has been such a beautiful thing that I want this next generation to see, that you don't have to just be this aggressive, self-confident, outward you know, well-spoken person. If you have the passion and the heart and you believe in what you want to do, you can achieve it if you can believe it. 
Oh, thank you so much for being on Marvel's Voices. I literally don't have the time to say all the incredible things I want to say about that conversation. It was absolutely amazing and such a great way to kick off our first episode of Marvel's Voices. So smart, so wonderful. All right, so that's not the end of the episode. Now we're going to hear a short conversation I had with actors Liebe Barrere and Gary Anthony Williams, whose characters also join Lunella and our favorite dinosaur on their adventures. Libe plays Lunella's best friend and manager Casey, and Gary plays Pops, Lunella's grandfather. Both of you are not new to the industry. For both of you, what drew you specifically to being a part of this incredible cast for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur? And we'll start off with you, Gary. I won a uh, leg wrestling match with uh, Lawrence Fishburne. He lost the match. Wow, that's if impressive. If you beat Lawrence Fishburne leg wrestling, you get whatever you want in life. And <laughs> no, several things. First of all, you can't go wrong by ever letting yourself be a part of the Marvel Universe, number one. Number two, when you find out the subject matter of young African-American girl, superhero, super smart, <laughs> you can't go wrong. And then once we got into this thing, when you start hearing the music and seeing the animation, like everything about it feels right, including the idea that it centers around community and family. Like everything just feels right about this whole thing. What about you, Libe? Yeah, I mean, all of those things too. And, you know, when we first got the audition, like I, you know, there was a deadline announcement that all I all I knew is that Lawrence Fishburne was producing this and that was kind of it none of the other cast was in place and I was just like you know for all the reasons Gary said I was like this seems like such an amazing project and then also the script was super fun even like the audition sides from the beginning I was like oh this is smart and fun and it really only like the layers of how it's interesting doing a cartoon because like it sort of evolves in front of you. And so like, I knew like the script was good. And then, you know, Diamond and I reported together from the beginning and I knew she was great. And, but then afterwards you see the animation and you're like, oh, cool. And then you hear the music and you're like, this is sick. And it's only gotten like more and more exciting as it's like come to fruition. I love it. And Gary mentioned family and he mentioned the Marvel Universe. I've actually had the opportunity to interview your sister, Ariella Barrere, who played Gert Yorks on Marvel's Runaways. Both of you have had the ability to be on these incredibly diverse casts, right? Veterans, younger people in the industry, people from all over the country, but also obviously people from different backgrounds bringing their experience to the table. For you, being Lunella's best friend and manager, how does it feel now and, and what are you excited about now putting this new animated representation into the space of every superhero needs a best friend who's got her back? Yeah, yeah, it's so funny that my sister and I are both like when I got this audition, I like told her about it and I was like, so crazy. Could you imagine if we're each on the only Marvel shows that this power is a dinosaur? <laughs> and then I remember telling in my audition, telling Steve and Kate that and they were like, oh, my God, so funny. And yeah, it's really cool. And I think that that's something that like my sister and I have are really close and we're very supportive of each other. And that's something that like I draw from with like my relationship with Casey and Lunella. And it's just a very real like fun friendship that they have that's like 
you know, we record most of the episodes together and like they, you know, we're encouraged to like riff and improv and stuff and banter. And they're like, we want messy. We want like, we're separated by different foods. And so we can overlap and stuff. And like, there's like a lot of real messy stuff there that makes it into the cut that you don't get in a lot of other cartoons and it feels very special. I think that is one of the cool things about this cartoon. The animation is beautiful, but it's also very gritty. It has a city feel to it, you know? It's not trying to look all smooth and sweet. It has a really cool, unique, gritty kind of feel to it. The theme for Marvel's Voices this season is about making an inclusive room. Gary, you have been on a number of shows and seen the industry change and evolve. And Libe, you're in the middle of setting this example and making this impact for both of you. What do you hope audiences will not just take away from this incredibly beautiful and fun story, but also when they hear the voices and they see the cast and the crew behind this incredible show? I love the absolute serious 100% real diversity of this whole thing. It is not trying to be. It is not acting as though it is just like seriously real. And I just found out from speaking to Libe on one of our breaks that she is who she is playing in the show, which is Latina and Jewish. Like, it's beautiful that they took who she is and let her blow it up into this character as well. I love the idea of that. It is incredible. And it's beautiful to see what happens when we're all working together on it. Yeah. And I think also, like, I know that for me, I would have loved as a kid to see a cool character like speaking Spanish and being celebrated for it. And I get to speak Spanish and Casey's cool. And I just would have loved to see that. I'm really excited to be that example for kids to like look at that and be like, that's cool. Oh, thank you so much. I cannot wait for folks to be able to see this show. And congratulations to you both. Thank you, Angelique. Appreciate it. They clearly had a blast making the first season of the series, and it really, really shows. The first two episodes of Marvel's Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur released last week on Disney Channel, and the first six are available right now streaming on Disney+. The show, honestly, it's so much fun. It's vibrant animation, incredible music by Raphael Sadiq, roller skating, and my personal favorite part of it all, a giant red dinosaur it's fantastic and you definitely don't want to miss it next week on our show i'm talking to creators from our brand new anthology marvel's voices wakanda forever number one available right now wherever you get your comics so you don't want to miss that either marvel's voices is produced by isabel robertson zachary goldberg Kara mcgurk allison and me angelique rochet Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina.